Welcome to the Light Gray Art Lab podcast. I'm Lindsay Knoll. And I'm Chris Heine. And today we're going to talk about a variety of topics that are somehow tied together by the threads of time. So over the last week, I've had a chance to float around eBay quite a bit. And uh, I wanted to tell you this because I'm going to spend all of our money on new collections. Uh, <laughs> collections of what? <laughs> collections of different new things. I, I have other collections and I think I may be phasing away from the things that I used to be really into mm-hmm. to completely new things. And I have been fascinated over the last, I'll just say, it's been a, a crescendoing kind of feeling. I've been I've been transitioning and kind of becoming more elated with old 50s artwork. Specifically, old oil paintings from the 50s era. Okay. When you say 50s artwork, I picture that retro 50s. No. Cartoony kind of... No, that stuff's cool too, but I specifically mean landscape paintings from the 50s. So a lot of them have those kind of Bob Ross, like, fan brush, little textures for trees and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, impasto kind of waves and stuff like that. They're all, like, rainbow colors. I know what paintings you're talking about. I feel like they are 1950s old people paintings. Old people paintings? Well, I feel like old... People make them when they are in their twilight years. That <laughs> <laughs> it may be true. And they, they looking for something to do. They're they're good, but they I feel like they are they have a certain naivete to them. Maybe I should really do some research on that because I, I feel like maybe some of that is true, and that's a painting style that people can pick up because it's it's got some sort of method to it. And you're like a tree is out of this brush and this is how you do it. And actually a lot of them look really similar too. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like, you know, it, it's been really interesting trolling the, the eBay universe and seeing just how many have similarities of, of compositions or types of trees or, you know, it's always, it really always is a mountain with maybe a little brook or a stream. Right. And then two big towers of trees. Mm-hmm. On either side. On either side that you can look through and you can see the mountain in the distance. And, yeah. And you were also looking at some other non-mountain paintings and they were the same thing where it was a city and there was one building that was in the distance and then there was like dark silhouettes of people on either side or something like that. So I think there might be a similarities composition 101 thing happening. Here. I think there might be. Well, you know, I think about that too. And it's funny when you look backwards in time and you can see these similarities between massive amount of artworks you know and you can kind of see how the colors are all exactly the same and everybody's drawing the same trees and it's identical methods of putting down stuff and you know i guess there's two thoughts here one of the thoughts i have is i really appreciate the similarities between all of them so when i look back and i and i and i see all these paintings i i not only like them for their quirky qualities but i also like how they're all unified, even though they're not by the same person, you know? And I think that is something that becomes charming after a really long period of time. So, for example, I'm looking way, way, way back in the 50s, and there's something really exciting about how old that is to me, you know? Um, (laughs) Okay. But I may not feel the same if I looked at a bunch of cereal box art from the 90s. Right. I would probably not feel the same, but I, you'd probably see the same stuff. 
kid with giant bugged out eyes, fisheye lens, you know, everything's like ultra airbrushed, you know? Yeah. Like you would see all the same stuff and everybody's doing the same thing, but you wouldn't really necessarily, it's a little too close. Maybe. Well, maybe for you. I feel like more likely people of our generation would probably get a real kick out of that stuff. So, really? Oh. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of people who collect stuff like that. Maybe it's an ebb and flow of like how how long it's been or how nostalgic it gets or something like that. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 50s, so when I look back there, everything is charming. <laughs> so every every single thing is exciting to me. Bob Ross fan brush, he, what was he, a 70s man? Early 80s man? Uh, I have no idea. So who knows? Who knows where he got his techniques from? But it doesn't really matter. But the the thing that I think is interesting is I wonder sometimes as I'm sitting there, um, you know, especially with things like our group shows, I'm sure there are themes and methods that are there that I can't see yet. But that every one of us that contributes to like a large 100-person show at Light Gray Art Lab are probably kind of... Oh, actually, you know what? You know what my my um similarity is here um we might all be using kyle t webster's <laughs> photoshop brushes you know yeah that and, is kind of a running theme yeah running theme and and maybe someday somebody's gonna look on ebay and find all of our artwork and they're gonna go oh i love how this kyle t webster photoshop brush is being used in all these pieces but it's all the same but it's not but it is you know but i think about that in terms of like artistic trends and it's funny how you can see the nuances when you're you're living it. Of course, every single piece of art that comes through the gallery is unique, and there's no doubting that. But it's funny how I can say that and look back at all these '50s pieces of art, and I'm like, they're all mountains, and they're all they've all got these two things, and they've all got the same colors. And you know, if I wanted to make a room full of mountains in her house, I could probably find enough artwork that fit this theme to plaster the walls with it yeah i think i mean i think that they're probably coming from two different places where one are coming from um people on a little bit more of a professional trajectory from the gallery see how do you know that these 50s people weren't i'm looking at the one in our house right now and i'm pretty sure (laughs) (laughs) wait what (laughs) i'm pretty sure i'm not I mean, I don't know. I don't you think that was the style, though? Don't you think that was a thing? Like a bunch of weird scumbling and like, you know, when actually, when was it that that word even? You should look that up on the Internet real quick. Scumbling? Yeah. When was it invented? I feel like it. I don't know. One million years ago. Well, anyway, there's like a it's it's palette knife central on this painting that we have. And it is rainbow colored and there's so much paint on it that if you ran your hand across it you would feel it you might even you know um it's like running your hand along a stucco wall yeah i'm i'm not sure if i'm gonna be able to find the year origin of scumbling okay well that's fine i actually don't like that word that much but it's it'll do it it is befitting of what it means yeah i guess it it sounds like what it is yeah well I, how do you know that that person who painted that painting in our house wasn't a professional and that everything that they they were asked to paint or that they did as a professional illustrator and or fine artist didn't fit perfectly with the era? That is exactly what I mean, people I think were maybe, looking for. Maybe it did, but um, I'm going – well, I don't know. I mean, he signed the painting, George, it, Yes, which leads me to believe it is a family member <laughs> or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> Could be his last name. That's, I don't know. That's my grandpa's name. So. All right. Well, okay. Well, I mean, my I, grandpa did not paint it, but no. But I, I mean, I feel like it's easy to make that jump too, because we're like, oh yeah, this is this is something that would hang in my grandpa's house. Therefore, I, I think somebody of grandpa's nature probably made this. But okay, well, let's just say that. Let's just say, yes, probably right now, the comparison that I'm making between light gray art lab professionals and people with a um a, a background that is. Uh, seasoned with all sorts of knowledge of the arts, is making more. Well, I don't even know how to finish this sentence. Is it? Is it? Would it mean that their group of artwork is what more professional than this than the rest of these paintings? Is that what you're trying to say? Um, I think that these paintings just are kind of of a style, and it reminds me of if you all took a class and kind of all had to paint the same thing. Um, and I don't know, part of me thinks like back in the day, there was more of a formulaic approach to art where everyone kind of like worked really hard to have the exact same look. And I don't think that probably has entirely gone away. I mean, when we look at our shows, you can definitely see threads Influences. of influence. Yes. Yeah. And you can, you can even see when we go through, you know, our shows or the thousands of other portfolios we look at to get to our shows as well. You can have a pretty good idea sometimes like which school people went to. Yes. Because schools have looks. It, you know, it's funny about that. Um, I was at Icon 8 and there were a panel of instructors from all sorts of different art schools. And they were talking about the concept of art school and its benefits and its detriments. And nearing the end, they had a question and answer session. And I asked, how do they play up or promote the specificity of their art school. And I mentioned that sometimes people say, oh, Ringling's got all of these really great, you know, thing like different ways that you can um, get ready for this kind of industry. And MCAD can do this for you. And then CalArts can do this for you. I mean, I think we can all, without even saying what, those schools can do for you you kind of have an idea of if you go to cal arts you are probably wanting to train for this 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 and this you know yeah um and he looked at me with this like kind of like recoiling disgust that (laughs) i would even say that their school had a look you know yeah and i was like how can you not see it from like well, may, I think that if you might, I mean, if you might be in the school, you might be in the, not looking at all the schools. I think that we're in a unique position where we have a lot of young artists from all over the country and all over the world. And not just us their young portfolio. artists. I mean, yeah, everybody. But, I mean, but I'm saying specifically for school looks, a lot of young artists who are, who have recently come from schools and, and just their geography based on, you know, where they're from, there's kind of like threads of looks and styles that kind of permeate i mean they're not like identical but there's no they're not identical there's definitely like a thread of influence that you can see and so he was he was shocked that i would say do you play up the fact that you guys have something really special which is what i meant Mm -hmm. and not like how come all your people look the same which is not what i you know what, what i was intending to say and he he said well we have a diverse amount of of stuff we teach in curriculum and we try to make sure that 
you know, we expose people to all sorts of things. And he totally didn't answer my question. But it was one of those things where I felt like he should be proud of the fact that there is a community building a certain kind of thematic or, you know, artistic thread. Right. That's how art movements happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is how art movements happen. I don't happen. think people would be look back to an entire movement in art history and just be like, well, how that, dare they? How, yeah. How dare they say we were in the same movement? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I was thinking about that when I was looking at all these paintings and I was like, you know, probably people will look at a, like, for example, I pulled up one that was $1,300 and I said, Chris, I'm going to spend all of our money on this painting. Mm-hmm. And then you said, I don't know if you should do that. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll do best offer and I'll offer him way less than that. Or maybe I won't buy it at all, you know. But I was thinking about it and I was like, this painting by far is the best painting on eBay right now. I think, well, okay, that has a lot of qualifiers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this painting is of Yosemite National Park. It I, is the best landscape painting from the 50s. That is an oil painting using the same techniques of all the other ones that look identical to it, except for this one is technically and and compositionally. I would probably have best. a different opinion about the price point that I'd be willing to spend if if it weren't being sold by someone who has no idea where it came from on eBay because they're just like, this was in my grandpa's house. I'm going to charge this much for it. But if it was the actual artist who painted it, then that would be an amazing price because it's a giant, you know, it's a very nice painting. But but the artist is not benefiting from the sale of this painting. And that makes a difference to you. Yeah, it makes a difference. So what I about... Think that in, yeah, I think... Um, to you specifically, but you don't think that that makes a difference to whoever else, right? Because when you go and you see Sotheby's or whatever the, the those guys are, or Christie's art sales, right? And you have them, um, you know, you have the everything going up in value. Mm-hmm. You know, each one is a jump, thousands of dollars or something. Well, like I that, think in that case, the... they probably have some sort of credentials behind who painted it, and it's not just a random attic find. But maybe it is. I don't know. Um, but you recently bought a strange statue. I did. And I was more comfortable with that because I knew it came cr- directly from the artisan who crafted it instead of some random person's basement. Some random basement? person's basement, yeah. Hmm. Well, and I don't think there's there's nothing wrong with having an amazing piece of work in your basement that you take out and want to put back into the world, but at the same time um I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, It's it probably stems from how I feel about, like, used games and things like that. Like, if you're buying a used game, then you are supporting the person who's selling the used game and not the people who made it, you know? Well, I think there's something to be said of that. I mean, it would be nice if once somebody was done with their painting, they just gave it back to the real artist. Like, <laughs> that'd be great. And then yeah, we like, could just I'm keep paying that person. I, that would be... Bad news if you're the artist. You're well, like, here comes my painting back. Everyone's sick. Of I mean, that's at it. the world of licensing, right? I mean, that's that's the entire that's the entire world of of how that works. You know, people are done renting your work; they give it back to you, and then you can sell it again to somebody else, and they continue to benefit off of it for one million years. You know, mm-hmm. and, and their estate benefits off of it for seventy five years after they're dead. Or how much licensed artwork do you think have a, a shelf life that once it comes back, it goes um it sells again multiple times well if we go based off of some of the world's most successful well i'm just saying i'm saying on average like the average like the average i'll say 15 years 
Really? 15 years? I'll say, yeah, 15 years. Okay. I think there is a demographic of people, and here's here's why I think this, and we should get some some super opinions on this podcast at some point, too. But my my thought is 15 years allows a person to grow as an artist. It has enough longevity for them to span usually a, a significant jump in artistic style that happens just naturally with time, right? So like the 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 um the kinds of work that the human populace likes mm-hmm. drastically changes over ten years, right? So by fifteen years, you're still carrying along those people that are really comfortable with that era. You know? I mean that's why we have people that have the same haircuts they've had since the seventies or the eighties, you know? Or why you still buy music that resonates from the 90s if you grew up in the 90s. I mean, I feel like 15 years is is enough that it still has a powerful influence on people. If you look at success stories like Mary Englebright, she's been doing stuff for one million years. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows what her stuff is. And there are still people that are finding out about her and... Although it's definitely has a stamp of when she, you know, originally started painting, it it still to some people is uh, a relevant style. Yeah, I feel like she trades in nostalgia, though, kind of. So at this point, it's so long that that now it's kind of funny I mean, even, and kitschy. I mean, you know, even before I think maybe it did. It's kind of it was always a quaint little down home thing i'm thinking that was the point of it right yeah Yeah. so i'm i'm thinking well what i'm thinking of i'm thinking about like product design where we're looking at things that were made two years ago and you're like oh my god that's so old looking well i think think that stuff doesn't stick around as long for licensed artists i think about it the same way i think about music you know and Mm -hmm. i think about uh okay for example uh metallica You know, long-standing band, you know, who can exist over a decent span of time and have changed slightly, maybe not drastically, but changed enough that they could keep their fans going with them. And eventually they become a classic, right? And so people will continue to to look at them, right? Or Red Hot Chili Peppers is like an example of where their style changed more, maybe, than than some people i'm just trying to think of bands that i actually know that have sort of sustained a radio presence over that long i mean i think Katy perry for example also has lasted a lot longer than a lot of pop stars might have and rihanna like how long have those guys been around why are they still around nobody knows but they're still making music that people listen to you okay. know yeah. and i figure those guys probably will continue to make music as long as they can keep saleable Right. Music on the on the radio, but and also as long as they can look beautiful on uh their videos, which is a sad reality maybe for some people. So yeah. I mean I don't know how long you think that time span is, but well, I, I think I, kind of... I, th- I do relate that to the lifespan of the licensed art I was talking about because I think that they are the outliers. I think, you know, you look back at the you know, BuzzFeed top hilarious seventies oh, yeah. wow. albums you know, of the album covers of the 70s or whatever. And for every act that is a long-staying mainstay, there was a million that, you know, kind of rode the wave and 
you know, fizzled out within the first couple of years. So well, this is really interesting. This is a, a conversation I think that we can have too here. So, okay. The ones that have rode the wave that are a mainstay, those were often so mainstream and all the edges have been kind of like sanded off of them. Right. That they weren't so specific that they couldn't last a little longer. Right. We had a podcast probably, what, a year ago where we were talking about the the idea of a generic thing, mm-hmm. you know? So music, for example, there are some some artists, some bands that have all the right things going for them, right? They have the right sound. They have, like, the ability to sell themselves. They have, like, tons of um, production behind them. You know, they have a budget. They're able to, to create music that is just relevant enough and just changeable enough over a course of time to stay relevant but anybody who is super specific like oh my god all i'm coming up with is 90s references and this will show you like exactly what i'm okay well let's list some 90s references to all right okay groups here yeah space hog yeah do you even know what that is you Uh know what that is yeah i know what space hog is what did they do one they song. They did that one song. Yeah, they did one <laughs> song, right? And then you're like, I know that song. And of course, when you listen to it, you're like, oh my God, this is exactly like the 90s. Yeah, like... Or Veruca brings... Salt or Garbage, you know? Like, maybe they spanned a little bit longer, but then you're also like, oh yeah, that was like a thing. But it's so specific that they didn't last as long as, for example, Gwen Stefani figured out how to last through the 2000s somehow, you know? Yep. So these are my great dated references. However, I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, Gwen Stefani's music was never so specific. Maybe in the beginning it was. She had some weird ska situation, but it was never so specific that she couldn't change with the time or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you still recognize her voice, you know. Yeah. Or Madonna is a better example, you know. Right. Like you knew who she was, but she wasn't so out there that it was alienating and specific yeah, to the time i don't know I, she might have been alienating in the beginning she what? was pretty out there isn't she start. still making music that is a question for the ages okay I, that's a question i mean for she the has internet. been up to pretty recently i haven't seen anything or like super at least recently, but what at i don't remember she recorded span... a song with britney spears or something so that was that was oh i mean that could have been really that could have been like 10 years ago no, her career years. at least <laughs> has been at, at least 20 years long if not way longer i'm sure longer yeah so that's amazing. So she has surpassed my 15-year prediction, mm-hmm. you know. So, But it's funny, though, because I think that is the ideal for many creative people, is to be able to adjust what you're interested in and ride the wave of of significance. Yeah. I think a lot of those people probably, though, are also, you know, there there are certain people, especially maybe in today's, like, kind of pop culture churn that just have to be um kind of generic enough and relevant enough but i think the other thing is if they are so specific that it is undeniable then you know i i don't know i'm thinking of people like david bowie or something like that where yeah you know i think he stayed relevant for a long time well i mean there's there's an iconic yeah like like either you're just kind of i mean i guess everyone i don't know i'm not a music critic so i will not say anything about who is relevant and who's not relevant but <laughs> well it's okay so i mean maybe this is a point like people make such a big splash 
when they do the majority of their creative work that they are known to define that time. David Bowie is an example. Yeah. Right? And there are people that not only have defined that time, Madonna, right? But that continue to create relevant music. And I, you know, I have my air quotes, my relevant music for a long time later. And I think ideally people would want to do that. They'd want to define something and keep it going. Or like, why does everybody still like you too? Is another question. I don't even know why anybody likes you too. But that's the thing <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, like some people can just continue to make music that is or artwork or writing or anything. David Sedaris, good example of like a writer that's continuing to be um, not only like an iconic person, but also, you know, somebody who can have new content. Churn out successful content. Successful, exciting content. That's the other thing. There's, it's not as much formulaic as it is just coming from like his essence, you know? So, and I mean, I that's hard to describe. Anyway, so back to my mountain paintings. Mm-hmm. There are probably some of those people who were commercial illustrators who have been asked to change. And there are some that have not been asked to change who wanted to make one mountain painting and that was what they wanted to do in the end, you know? Do you ever think about that as a creative person, like deciding when you're going to switch up what you're doing, everything that you've learned, like say you were, say you learned, um, say you learned illustrator Mm -hmm. and everything that's learned illustrator. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, you know, illustrator say your artwork when you started making work was defined by illustrator and its functions and its stylistic capabilities. And we all remember when that was a thing, right? right? And say that was the only thing that you were really comfortable with and that you enjoyed. Do you think you would ever have a problem then deviating from your style in order to change with? Is this a hypothetical me, quote unquote me, that is a illustrator, no well-known illustrator for using adobe illustrator no this is not a no i'm not talking about somebody else and asking you i'm i'm talking about you or Uh your concept of what it's like to be asked to change or the pressure of having to change with the times even if you draw the way you draw Um, and and i think so i think we ended up in product design because we i i feel like i have a definite thread of what I like and how I draw, but I also was never the, the person who had like a style or the thing that I did. My projects in school was like, this one is in illustrator and it is a cute, adorable, you know, kind of like Japanese um, packaging design inspired thing. And then this one is, you know, more like a David Rothko inspired fine art drawing. And then this one is a, you know, um, all over the place so and what when it comes to change i didn't really have anything that i was like kind of known for doing so it wasn't it wasn't a big deal yeah like the thought of having a change isn't a thing so there was somebody on the internet the other day that wrote a big long post and i'm going to leave them anonymous for a little bit because i wasn't sure whether or not this was i mean it's public because it's on the internet but um there was an artist that um, that we know that 
was writing about how they don't appreciate when people are saying, like, you can't do what you're doing forever. And if you continue doing what you're doing, you know, and selling out to what people are asking you right now, your artwork will not last longer than however long. And they're trying to say, you need to change with the times or you need to make better business decisions as an illustrator and not sell out your style right now so that you you can keep it with you for a long time. And she was really mad. Um, and it was an interesting thought to have, you know, somebody kind of defend their their choice to continue making the content that they want to make. Mm-hmm. But then also having the people that say that they're her fans or whatever say you need to change like it was one of those things where you know what do you do as a creative person do you dig your heels in you say i do whatever i want to do and i think a lot of people would say yes Uh and then other people would say hey drawing is a business and i need to make sure that i that i can ease into a different time zone you know yeah i think that both are totally viable answers and I th- I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. I think that you should you know, if that's what if the, your goal is to do what you want to do, then do what you want to do. If your goal is to make a living, then you probably will need to kowtow to the demands of the buying, you know, whoever your client, whoever your audience is. Um but at the same time, I also don't think most people want to do the exact same thing forever. So I think and I think it it can happen both ways where people kind of change with kind of the cultural zeitgeist of whatever's happening and it's not that they are selling out it's just like that's how people work you know there usually is some sort of massive cultural shifts that happen and kind of people move along the same trajectory and then there's other other people who might have had a very successful thing going on and then you know this this flight of fancy or this new inspiration took them in a way kind of away from an audience they might have had and i don't think that is bad in any I don't think that's bad at all. It's just um it's just their goal. If their goal is to create whatever they want, then they should create whatever they want. But if their muse is taking them away from, you know, what's going to make them a living, then they need to and they need to make a living, then they need to figure out they need to make a balance, I guess. So Yeah. I mean that makes sense. I wouldn't be angry about it either way. I think that if if, if you your if your audience feedback? if your audience is act asking for you to change, then and you are against that then it's time to find a new audience i guess so yeah i wouldn't be mad at the audience i would be mad at nobody i guess i don't know <laughs> i mean it's, you just you know, be mad and then you, you can't would... be mad about what people like so yeah well it's interesting i mean it's it's a hard question i'm sure there are a lot of people that might be listening that might be like i don't want to change for anybody like i'm in this because my soul's in this and this is exactly what i do so if you don't like it then you know Right. And whatever, and then there are a lot of us that I'm sure are also completely swayed by how much feedback we're getting and whether or not people are buying our work or mm-hmm. asking for you know I guess our on expertise. A, on a personal level, going back to the question you asked earlier, mm-hmm. when I am making artwork for myself or something like that, mm-hmm. then I have I like. When I make personal artwork, it is like purely personal. I am not looking to sell it. I do not put it on a Society6 page or anything like that. It is purely to make it. And you just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I so whether or not people even like it, it is pretty inconsequential. Um, but then on my professional side, I am making it for clients. I am making it for specific target markets. So you're and able I, to to separate. What yeah, you're it's doing. not even. I mean, it is literally not even the same thing at all. Um, and that's so, interesting. I mean, when I was talking about the idea of licensing and longevity of like a brand, you know, um, obviously there are tons of different examples of people that can last a year and people that can last a million years and everybody in between. Right. Um, I always do wonder what the main like fire or main objective of a person is. I mean, everybody's different. You know, some people are so self-reliant and so kind of confident in their own work that they, they do what they do. And, you know, they're on that, that side of the spectrum where they treat it as if it is their personal projects. They do not care. And if people respond, great, you know, um, and then there's the other side where they just want to sell some stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and they, they happen to be good at something so that they do it. And I, you know, it's a question again of like, selling out right i'm sure i don't know if we talked about this on the podcast or not i don't remember i don't think we have i don't think we have and i i feel like in the like last i don't know seven eight years i don't think that term has come up very often at all like i don't hear people saying that i used to hear it when i was teaching like seven or eight years ago, people would say, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that because it's selling out. And I'm just like, do people even think of that anymore? Do people even, is that because of like how much debt the collective universe of art students have or how crazy the economy was and is starting to recover or how, you know, how the universe has kind of like tweaked how living is for people that are like in their 20s or in their 30s has have people like just given up on the concept of selling out and they're just like I am a smart business person with my art and yeah, selling I think out it, the I concept it, is not a thing anymore I don't even think it is the I mean maybe it is the you know the economy and the debt and all that kind of thing but I feel like the icons that people aspire to be like in the you know, in the seventies and the eighties. And I mean, it still happens today, but there was like huge disputes with, you know, record labels or something like that over what they wanted to create versus what the record, and it still totally happens all the time. But, but I feel like more of the kind of cultural relevant icons don't only make music. They also have a television show and they make clothing and they It's have, about them. It's their personality. Right. So it's more of a – it just is more acceptable because it doesn't have to be like I'm about this and this is the only thing I'm about and anything outside of this realm is selling out. Instead, it's just like look at all these things I can contribute to. Um, so if you kind of go outside what you were known for, it's – um not selling out it's just expanding what you you know your your creative influence i guess well that makes sense i mean that makes sense to me just taking a look at how we consume media and how we consume stuff mm-hmm. you know i mean it's you get to cherry pick whatever you want and so if somebody is versatile and they can have lots of different things you know going on for them i'm yeah. sure people can participate in in different ways and maybe that's just the way that things are and the level of technology also facilitates that a lot because now 
you can do all of these things on your own. You can, you know, you, you don't need a giant label behind you to make them. I don't know why I keep defaulting back to music, but because that's just, we started on music. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, but you don't need that. You can have your own YouTube page. You can, you don't need incredible. So it's, you're able to, to do shoot everything something yourself. like that. So you can do that yourself. You can print your t-shirts yourself. It's much more accessible. You can make all your graphics yourself. You can do everything yourself. You can make a website yourself. You can do everything. So it's not, it's not so much selling you out because you can just control so much of it yourself. And do you think in this case, like, and this is something that I've seen that I will, I'll have to look more into this and see if this is, is truly how I'm envisioning it. But I see a lot more people branding just themselves, their name, mm-hmm. less so than hiding behind a collective. And I shouldn't even say hiding behind a collective because it's not hiding. It's teaming up, you know. Right. Um, but you see a lot more individuals kind of putting their name out there as, you know, an ever-changing mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's it's interesting because we just went maybe a month ago to the Atlanta gift show where the majority of product that's there is licensed work from different artists that have, like, in quotes, like, a thing that they do. Mm-hmm. And half the people on my Instagram feed are people that are licensed artists that do a thing that have been recognized by a product line somewhere in the Atlanta gift show, you right. know? Yeah. Like there are people that have those things. And I realize that is not where their creativity stops is whatever I saw at the Atlanta gift show of right. theirs. Yep. That is a small piece of it. And I'm lucky to see the rest of it on their creative feeds, you know? Um. And I was just thinking about that because it is, again, there's an old idea of what you're supposed to be doing and and how formulaic things used to be, you know, the numbers of things in your licensing portfolio or the way you carry your brand or how much personal information you put up on your profile and like all these different kinds of like standards that I don't really think are there anymore, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I think people want to know, want to hear the voice of the creator, and that is that trumps all other everything. They want to buy your, they want to live vicariously through you. They want to buy your lifestyle, you know. Um, and that's more what I'm seeing in terms of like why people get interested in, you know, a licensed artist than a lot of things that it used to be instead of just being a stylistic choice or the way you draw your well, you typography, didn't, you, didn't, I mean, you know, you used to not have that window into a personality. Right. At all. Yeah. Like the only, I mean, I mean, I listened to a lot of, I mean, obscure things like everything that I liked in my life has been really obscure and it was more magical as a teenager to find something. Because I, yeah, like to find, well, to just have it because I only knew what I knew and that's all I knew. And then, um, you know, like I listened to a lot of like German industrial bands and things like that. <laughs> and I spoke a tiny bit of German, but for the most part, what I knew is whatever was on the album and that's all I knew yeah. because it wasn't in magazines and it wasn't in, there was no internet. Um, so looking back every once in a while, I go, oh, remember that band? And then I'll like wikipedia it and i will learn all these things and i'm like if i knew this when i was growing up i probably would have been less excited because they didn't 
you know, whatever spawned directly from hell or whatever, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever I, you know, whatever, um, whatever imagination were, that I had about what, where the, the origins of this, you know, crazy thing came from. It wasn't that it was just like, you know, like two kids got together, they had like a band and then they, you know, moved into the industrial scene and then, and then that's it or something, you know, whatever. Yeah. So it, well, it's just a lot, a lot less exciting, but it is easier to, um, connect directly with people. So you kind of might lose that, uh, you know, the, the mystique, I guess you might lose some of the mystique, but I think that's why when people are able to curate that and they are able to remain a mystery or an enigmatic figure, Mm -hmm. people are even more interested because it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And they want all the information and they're like, I'm thinking specifically of like Deontwort where everyone is like, is this real? Is this real? How real is this? Like, are these, you know, like whatever. And, um, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Watkin Tudor Jones has like a history of making music and things like that. But, and you, you can find it. Yeah. So you can find out a lot about what he did before that. Um, but he also, they also curate a very, uh, curated yeah. you know, like image of themselves that's that's hard to get past if you don't really dig so i think um i think that you know weirdness and kind of not knowing exactly what's going on is something that they use to their advantage that back I, in the day all the bands were like that because you're just like i have no idea what's happening yeah well i just found this album sitting on this store in my local store and i picked it up and well you felt weird. like you had a sense of of like uncovering a jewel somewhere and i feel like that is something that is maybe harder to do i feel like the equivalent to that no. now is like the i'm i watched this youtube video before it had Hundred thousand views or something like that. Well, uh, what I think, what I think it is now, and now I is sound like the oldest person in the world. So, well, yeah, no, I mean, but I am. So, I think, I think it is more now. Finding a jewel is usually when you find something that's local, and I think a lot of people have returned to local presence and local community, and you know, something that you know that is in your backyard that is separated from everything else. You know, mm-hmm. so and I, I feel like that's why we see a lot of like guides to, you know, guides to Minneapolis, guides to Chicago. It's like, here's this little hole in the wall that has the best sandwich, you know, like things that you would never know. The same kind of stuff that like if you go and visit a friend in another place, they're like, you know what? Out of all the bubble tea in this entire city, this is the one, you know. Right. And there are things like that where you hold this little tiny secret and it's your little thing, you know. Um and I feel like that is something that I quest for when I'm going anywhere. When I um, got the chance to drop Francesca off uh, in Seattle and walk around for a day, it was interesting because, you know, we got coffee recommendations from people. And that's just like specifically coffee, you know, for this this example. People were like, this one is the coffee that does this. And this is the coffee that does that by this person, you know, or like this coffee shop lets you do here or do this here. I mean, I'm being super vague, but it was uh, it was interesting because I like those recommendations because I feel like they're sharing like a small, like little tiny glimpse into a world that I can only visit once, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll remember it. Or when we go somewhere and I find a store that I really like and I'm like, wow, this is great. I can't believe that, you know, I'm going to put this in my memory, 
bank or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, so but I, I feel like captain's that local. Log. I'm gonna put this in my captain's log when I get back on my starship. So I I feel like that's that has replaced some of like you know finding like a weird magazine with a small little reference and then you know trying to find out more or going actually maybe it hasn't maybe it's maybe it's identical to what it used to be when you would go to a show and you'd see an opening band and you're like who are these people Mm -hmm. and you would only see them there because they were within a three four state radius and you'd be like these guys are my new favorites or i should check them out and all of a sudden it was your little secret you know like your little tiny experience that not everybody else can have. But anyway, I was thinking about all this stuff because I was like, man, it's so interesting how time changes our perspective of what's relevant or iconic or interesting. And when you're living in it, it's so easy just to kind of assume that you should keep up with the current of like, you know, what other people are, are considering the norm. And I mean that on like a creative level as much as I mean that on like a marketing level, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you were talking about how curated some people's presences are, I was thinking about how you're right. Like right now there is such a push to just put out free content all day, every day, forever expose every single thing you're doing at every single hour because people consume it at like an alarming rate, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And how stressful that is to think that that is what everybody should be doing, you know? And I know there are people that don't do that. Um, and they have decided that, that, you know, their perspective is to keep it to the only things they want people to see. Um, it's funny. I, I think I end up more on the, personally, more on the, put it out if i'm really excited about it but then you know a lot of the a lot of the little tiny behind the scenes things i mean besides talking vaguely about it on the podcast sometimes i think a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors that has to happen in an in in like an incubator you know yeah and that i I don't feel comfortable exposing the entire working process it's like it's like you don't want to hear and here's our music analogy again you don't want to hear somebody like sitting on their keyboard or their piano plunking out the same like refrain until it's perfect like you don't want to see that like you don't want to see the one it used to be and then the one that it was and the one that it is and then have people go back and forth you know like that's not interesting nor nor does it keep that mystique going of like how did this person put this thing together you know, right. maybe a glimpse of it in a in a luxurious 80s montage might be kind of fun, but you would never want to watch the entire process of that kind of thing. Although, yeah, I don't I think that is definitely definitely a thing. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking of. Well, you probably don't know much about this, but there's early access on steam <laughs> no i don't know what that is is it, that betas or what yeah it's basically you pay for the game you get early access and you a lot of times get a barely functioning piece of garbage <laughs> and i i feel like it has been incredibly detrimental to the creative process well to the excitement level because for one 
it exposes everything it ex- that you were it doing? exposes everything which is fine and it and it's kind of it's basically like pay to be a pay to you know hammer on our game and work out some of the kinks for us or whatever um i think people probably feel like they're contributing directly to the development process so it, i mean if you are that type of person that might be really interesting but there might be a game where i'm like ooh, i'm really excited about this game and then early access happens and then i'm like well you know, I was going to buy the game anyway, so let's get in early access. And then you get into it, and then it's a, it's not finished. It and it's is, got bugs. And, it's, and it's got bugs. But then you get you get like that cult of the new taste, and then you're like, okay, I'm kind of moving on. And then when the game finally does release, you're like, yeah, I already saw that, even though it was not in its finished state. And it's just like, you know, by the time it comes out, it's kind of like lost a lot of that luster. Yeah, so, yeah. And then the other one is Kickstarter, which I think I feel less excited about backing Kickstarters these days. Because really? I, I hate the emails they send. I'm like, I don't want to see any of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Just send me the thing when it's finished. <laughs> Do you think that's just you? I'm trying to figure out. It's, I don't know. It might just be me. Even on Patreon, there, there are people, you know, and maybe that's just the difference. There are people that want to consume every step of the way. They want to see it worked on. They want to see, like, what you're doing, and that's what they pay you for, right. you know? They're like, I want to see how you did this. And I think that is interesting, but I think there's just too much now. I backed a couple Double Fine projects and you know who Double Fine are? They, yeah, yeah, and they are awesome people. Tim Schaefer is hilarious and entertaining in every way, but it's it's like way too much content. Is it they just are, like when you get barraged? They have a living documentary like, team. Well, who just like makes is documenting the whole thing, and I watched like one or two, and I was like, "This is a waste." It's not a waste. I mean, it's 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 interesting and well made. But I'm like, maybe make the game and film all this stuff. And then when the game comes out, put out like an hour long making of. And then I will digest that instead of digesting this as it goes goes every single week for an undetermined amount of time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there is something to be said about being surprised by the experience itself and not having it wrecked for you the entire way. Yeah, and I just I literally just turned all that stuff off because I was like, I would rather just like like I back the game or project or whatever it is that I back because I want to enjoy the final product. And I feel like all of these things that I'm learning about it is rever- reverse to my enjoyment. It's <laughs> it's like just wrecking things. I'm, I'm not one who's like into spoilers. And it's like, if you tell me the plot twist in a movie or a book or something like that, I'm not going to be like, Oh, what are you ruined the whole thing? Yeah. Because it's more than just like a twist, you know? Well, or one plot point or one character reveal or something like that. But when it's just like a nonstop, like, here's the new character we added this week. Here's the new backgrounds we made. Here's whatever. And I and so when I see the finished thing, I'm like pulling out and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when I saw them draw this. I remember when I saw them, you know, put this together. I remember the animation test for this. I remember blah, blah, blah. And yeah, well, I was thinking about that. Like, it would be interesting 10 years from now. 20 years from now to unearth all of Tim Schafer's and the documentary team's efforts. Right. And be like, oh, cool. And digest it all at once as, as somebody looking backwards in time. Yeah. And I would have loved, and I probably could find some information maybe about how all those mountain paintings 
actually became a thing. I mean, we all know the big eyed, like sixties, late sixties <laughs> paintings. Yeah. Of all the dogs, cats, like boys and girls. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I mean that everybody painted those for a while too. Like it was a thing that everybody had. Sad clowns. Sad clowns. Or those grape grape lamps, those resin grape things that everybody had for some reason. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. Or those like weird double or triple ceramic little icons that you hang on your wall. Some are like sunfish and other ones are like little cats or something like that. I don't know if I know that. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) I'm getting more and more into the zone. So, but at the time, I mean, it would be interesting to digest like what was happening? Why was this happening? I mean, it's like when you look at any uh, Jim Henson, like like workshop mm-hmm. stuff and you're like oh my god this is great or like you know when i did go to um icon 8 they had the leica studios like show just a couple photos of their workspaces and you're like oh my god that's amazing it looks like a real workshop with real people in it you know like mm-hmm. making actual things like stuff like that is cool i think it is interesting to think that you and me, and actually, I, I I agree um with this too. Me and maybe some other people would rather see the behind the scenes after they they've digested the work of art itself. Mm-hmm. After you've seen it in its seamless magical state, to go back and say how did they do that, and then have that content available then right. instead of seeing it first, and then you know, having it spoiled for you or ruined for you or yeah. whatever you want to call it, you know. Or, I mean, there's certain things that are just like the things that are iconic and resonate with you. For instance, maybe, you know, the Muppets mm-hmm. workshop stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I love all the Muppets stuff and that's cool. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that I was going to resonate with that before I saw it. Right. So, you know, it's sort of, if I spend all my time following something that, in the end, I'm just like, oh, actually, I didn't really like that movie after all. But I have spent <laughs> so much time watching these documentaries and behind the scenes things and, you know, like sneak previews and all these kind of things. And yeah. I, to, and then something doesn't even end up resonating with me. Then I don't know. We should have a conversation with Francesca at some point about the the director's cut commentary. Because I feel like she watches and listens to those in all movies I really I really like them. I really? mean that's the kind of thing it's like an after the fact like I mean I wouldn't like watch once them once you like the I object. wouldn't watch them for all movies but for yeah. the movies I like I think it's really interesting. Um yeah, yeah and I think I mean, that's something I'm for. Yeah. And it, I don't know, it's just so funny. Again, that's something I'm for. I especially like them you know fairly fairly distanced from the movie. I think now it's kind of in vogue to do it like they just do it like they have to have they just one. throw it on the thing yeah but i yeah. like it more when it's like a cast or a director coming back and looking at the work you know 10 years later or something like that and then them kind of like shaking their head and being like i can't believe that i included this what a horrible idiot i was you know stuff like that <laughs> yeah um, just a more honest look instead of being like oh here's this actor he's a great actor he might be in my you know next movie i don't know so yeah distance enough that you can actually be honest yeah. about some of the stuff that did or did not work yeah yeah well I don't know. I guess our whole entire podcast today has been about like some nostalgic factors about being current and also kind of considering like 
what influenced the final product, you know, in some ways. And it's not going to stop me from buying a million 50s mountain paintings. Sorry, Chris. But it will probably make me think a little bit harder about exactly why all that stuff is. Well, the question is, is the mountain paintings that you like now a fad that you're personally going through? I'm going back in time for or the are fad. You, well, I mean, are you going to be in five years? You're going to be like, mountain paintings are out. Now what's in is whatever. And then you're going to trash this, you know, $2,000 painting and throw it in the garbage. No, I wouldn't. I would I'd find the original You'd artist. Sell it on eBay. Yeah. I would give it back to them so they may, they may do it yet. No, I... You'd give it back to George. Give it back to George. Find George. See if his, his grandchildren are around. You know, actually, they'd probably really like that. Which is a side note, but, um, but I don't know. I think I think I have considered these new things, those paintings for sure. Um, the Oaxaca wood carving animals. Mm-hmm. That's another one. I've got a million images of those things in my um, eBay moment. Man, eBay is the best. <laughs> it is the weirdest place. It has the when eBay first stuff. launched or whatever. I was the same way, but now I will not even look at eBay. It's too bad because you are missing out on all of the obscure, Ugh. interesting things hate, about life. I just hate the way eBay functions. As That's like people how... who snipe auctions and things like that, just give me Amazon. I'll just pay for it. You are you are missing the point. That is the the point is about how amazing and weird this stuff is. It's for it's for the people that want to find a gem amongst the garbage it's because like there's the plenty of garbage. On the internet. It is thrift store on the internet. So, but i I don't think I'll I don't think I'll abandon my old collections and things like that. But I feel like I'm riding a wave of a new interest and a new influence and a new kind of a thing. I'll ask you this. Yeah. Where's your where where did you hide your kid robot collection? Uh I hid it at Savers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is I did not have a massive kid robot collection. Yeah, but it was something that we collected like ten or fifteen I years ago. I think we had maybe fifteen objects. Maybe more than that. But I think I got pretty sick pretty quick. And now we have zero. Yeah, I don't even know if we have any. We don't have any, but um, yeah, I, I except I, for the ones we made. I did never. I never made one. Oh well, I made one and I still have it. Yeah. No. Every time and I, like I look it. at it's still cute. Yeah, yours is cute. Every time I look at those things, I get mad. <laughs> so how long <laughs> until you get mad every time you look at a mountain painting or a I don't know Ocampa sculpture? Uh, Ocampa. That's an Ocampa is the the alien that. That Kess was. On. Yeah, I know what Ocampa. Oh, okay, is. all right. I just don't remember what the sculpture is called now. Yeah, well, and it's not called a Ocampa. Yeah, we'll get we'll link to an Ocampa on the Star Trek wiki page so people can see what Chris just said. Oh, I hate Kess. Okay, so it is. I don't know. I I'm gonna I'm gonna I. I'll say that I will. I'll ride this one out for at least, at least fifteen years. How's that? All right. I'll. I'll see. We'll, Check in with we'll me. We'll see. How long has it been going? We've had this um, mountain painting here hanging here for at least like a year or something. Yeah. No, I still love it. It's good painting. I'm surprised you don't like it as much as I do. So It's fine. 
Yeah. Well, we'll we'll continue this. We'll we'll do a recap in 15 years and do a making of. Remember that? We're going to do that. So I'm going to put it on my iPhone calendar that I won't have in 15 years. I'll have to check in with my actual memory or whatever else happens. And, and we'll do a behind-the-scenes director's cut of how amazing this was. Your my interest mountain in, paintings buying sprint yeah spree yeah because everyone at that point will want to know the behind the scenes so um let's hear from jenny really quick about what is to come here in the next week or so hi guys <laughs> jenny are you magically appearing to tell us what's coming up next week? i am so if you guys have your calendars in front of you we have a couple really exciting events coming up so our next event is actually February 19th. We're having our next game night. Uh, if you guys didn't come this last week, it is on Thursdays now because Chris is a teacher. Teaches on Wednesdays, which is pretty exciting. So Teach, what's our game night about this time? Um, I haven't decided, but you can sure it will be a great thing. Yes. So it's from <laughs> 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. on the decided. 19th. Uh, the next event that we have coming up is actually a huge, huge project that we've been working on for quite a while. But we're just gearing up for Boss Rush, which opens March 20th from 7 to 10 p.m. We're going to have a giant party with over 100 artists worth of new work that they're making about their favorite bosses and bad guys and villains from all sorts of video games. So it'll be a very fun opening. And then the next weekend, we're packing up our stuff and headed to GlitchCon. I don't know, Chris, if you want to tell everyone about GlitchCon. Yeah, GlitchCon is at the McNamara Center at the University of Minnesota. It is a weekend-long gaming symposium, festival, conference, event, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be talks about making video games, working in the industry, just appreciating the industry, the culture, the art, everything. It's just a big celebration of games. Um, there's going to be our art show, obviously. Mm-hmm. Boss like Rush Jenny, is traveling all Boss the Rush way is traveling. over there. It's going to, we're going to give juried awards at the GlitchCon ceremonies. And we are going to also be teaching a workshop in creating pixel art for a platformer like Dream Arcade. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also going to be tons of other stuff. Fantasy Flight's going to be there running Netrunner tournaments. There's going to be um, lots of vendors, lots of food, lots of everything. So it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, that so, sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited. So that's March 28th and 29th. And if you guys are local or if you want to participate in the convention, um, I think the tickets are on sale right now for discounted rate on the GlitchCon website. We'll make sure to put up a link yep. there for you guys in the podcast notes also. And if you haven't been to our blog recently, you should go take a nice big old look in there because we just posted our most recent call for art. It's called Guts. It's all about the insides of things. So we are going to ask all of you artists to look into things, peel back the skin, grab your scalpels, and think about how to dissect some of your favorite scientific or engineering topics um, in an interesting way that may be inspired by the truth, but maybe is a little... What are you going to say, Chris? I was waiting for you to say something. <laughs> His mouth was pursed with anticipation. I was going to say fabricated, I guess. This is creative nonfiction. So when you think about this, 
consider the experience of walking into a gallery and not really knowing whether or not things are real or not so real. We have some examples of what we mean. If you want to take a look, we actually have Lana Crooks as our featured artist. She has inspired this really great combination of concepts. And of course, if you haven't seen what she does, she makes these wonderful wool sculptures. Each one has a very realistic structure built off of bits and pieces of uh, different kinds of animals, plants, things like that. And she'll be doing some unique new work for the featured artist section of the show too. So the call for art is going to be up through February 25th. If you know anybody that's interested in being a part of it, feel free to share the link. We'll make sure to tweet that out, put on Facebook, and make sure to keep you guys up to date with when the call will be ending. But Chris, where can people find all these things? You can head on over to our blog, blog blog.lightgrayartlab.com, and you can stay up to date with all of the new happenings that's going on. You can find us on Twitter. We're at lightgrayartlab. You can like us on Facebook, and you can be (laughs) kept up to date there, too. What were you going to say? Titillated with Twitter? (laughs) I don't know what I was going to say. That's too bad, because that's what you should have (laughs) said. You can follow us on Tumblr, where lightgrayartgallery.tumblr.com. You can subscribe to the show on the iTunes Music Store or stream it directly on Stitcher Radio. And if you feel so inclined, we would love for you guys to rate us on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Um, just head over there. We think I think we've got a link on our blog for that, too. If you got an extra minute, that would be amazing. So thanks again for listening, you guys, and we'll talk with you soon.